Good morning, and welcome to Reflections with Derek and Zachariah. I'm Zachariah, I've got Derek over here, and today is the first day of our read-through of The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, written by Jamar Tisby. So, we've been excited about this. This has been in the works for about a couple weeks now. Um, this is our first time, so we're, we've got a structure we're looking at of discussion, but it's probably going to change as we continue. That's kind of how it goes <laughs> in the podcast game. But uh, just a reminder, if you want a free copy of the book, go ahead and send Ian at Ecclesia NJ an email, and we could probably get you one. And we also would love to have your questions sent to us. We'll have a link in your description to send um, any questions you guys have about the book if you're reading along with us. And uh, yeah, we're pretty excited. So before we officially get started, I'm going to read uh, some scripture to get us um, get us in the mindset of reflecting on this pretty intense book in this intense topic. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. And now over to Derek for a summary, and then we'll have a quick discussion. Thanks, Zachariah. That uh, scripture actually pulled from Tisby. So uh, that was one of the passages that he had given us. Anyway, let's start with a quick summary of chapter one. Uh, so Tisby, he opens with this dual image of a church and a courtroom side by side. Four innocent black children are murdered in the bombing of a black church, and a white lawyer condemns the racism that allowed for this injustice to happen. And the lawyer doesn't just condemn those who physically planted the bomb in the church, but he condemns the white residents of the community for reinforcing the hatred and the racism that sowed the seed for such a disastrous event. The lawyer is threatened with death by those who disagreed with him, and he is driven out of the community. Justice is not served in the town, and hatred and racism continue on. On page 14, Tisby locates the source of such injustice in, quote, the failure of many Christians in the South and across the nation to decisively oppose the racism in their families, communities, and even in their own churches. This provided fertile soil for the seeds of hatred to grow. The refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to oppression perpetuates oppression. Tisby then continues the first chapter by addressing preliminary questions on this topic, like who, what, why, and so what. He first defines some terms. Racism is a system of oppression based on race. Oppression happens when those who possess power repress those who don't have any power. Race just so happens to be one of the ways in which power has been divided and distributed in America. Tisby calls this a social caste system. White men and women, Tisby says, have used tools like money, politics, and terrorism to consolidate their power and protect their comfort at the expense of black people. Importantly, he highlights in this beginning section that Christians 
have not only been complicit in maintaining this caste system, but we have enforced its existence and at times have fought against racial equality through our beliefs, actions, and silence. He then talks about how he'll go about proving his points. He'll be doing a historical survey. He will cover a large amount of history quickly, selecting events and figures of interest and highlighting patterns and trends of action. And his goal is to show us how racism has changed and negatively influenced our society over time. This won't be comprehensive and we shouldn't expect this to be comprehensive. Rather, it's written to be a launching pad into further personal research. All this recounting of history can be deeply Christian if we adopt a posture of confession and repentance toward what our predecessors have done, what our society has become. Tisby adds that this recounting of history it might be hard to read. He won't be avoiding difficult tragedies of our past. This, of course, will incite a sense of loss, loss within us. The narrative we read will be violently different from the idyllic and nationalistic gloss of America that most of us have been raised on. And there will be a sense of loss when we read that those who built orphanages were also deeply complicit in the evils of racism. Tisby wants to disturb our sense of dividing the world between good and evil, heroes and villains, Christians and sinners. Every human has the capacity to do profound good and profound evil. So what? Tisby calls for immediate action. His argument is that the narrative presented in this book will demand it. And upon finishing this book, it will be on us to respond. Do we find this narrative to be true and worthy of our trust? Or will we remain in silence and inaction? Zachariah, how did you respond to this first chapter? To begin with, I wanted to read a quick uh, paragraph from uh, Tisby's book from the first chapter. It's on page 17, if you happen to have the book, right in the middle. Quote, Given the history, complicity is a weak word for describing how American Christianity has often interacted with race. As, as historian Carolyn DuPont describes it, not only did white Christians fail to fight for black equality, they often labored mightily against it. Complicity connotes a degree of passivity, as if Christianity were merely a boat languidly flowing down the river of racism. In reality, white Christians have often been the current whipping racism into waves of conflict that rock and divide the people of God. Even if only a small portion of Christians committed the most notorious acts of racism, how many more white Christians can be described as complicit in creating and sustaining a racist society? End quote. So I lift up that paragraph because that's one of the paragraphs that really stuck out to me. As Christians in America, our heritage is dirty. It's not great in a lot of ways and very bad in a lot of others. And of course, there are good things. But that's not really what we are trying to focus on while reading this book. I don't want to try to make it look like there's a 50-50 thing going on in our history. Because unfortunately, there wasn't and there isn't. The Christian church in America is one of the bulwarks of racism and white supremacy over the history of America. 
That's why we're doing this. That's why we're reading difficult passages like this one. So that we can be part of the solution. Because as Tisby writes, truth leads to repentance, and repentance is what leads to reconciliation. So that's the that's something that really stuck out to me. Derek, what did you kind of think about that? Yeah, I, I think this idea of a dirty history isn't something we think of when we think Christianity. Um, and, and that's something he mentions in the book, too. He, he mentions that as one of the likely responses you'll get from people who disagree with him. Oh, how could how could Christians have done anything wrong? You know, this is the church. It's holy. Um, and and that's one of the causes of grief, which he says, um, he says, we'll come to realize that this thing we have imagined as you know, this perfect Christian history, this perfect tradition that we come from, actually, <laughs> there's a lot of people who've done a lot of evil in this tradition. And that's hard to reconcile. It's, it's hard to uh, come to terms with. And not a lot of us do that. Uh, actively, I think. And and I think a lot of us have this fear of, oh, if I could confess that the church has done wrong, then I'm not, you know, believing in God, or I'm not believing in the power of, of Jesus through his church, or I'm discounting Christianity in some way. Um, I don't think that's true at all. Uh, I think it's, it's a very Christian thing to admit that the church is human, that God is working through human people who have the capacity to sin. And how much more grace and mercy does that give to God when he works through a broken people? Um, and, and so this idea of grief actually ties into what I found really interesting. So he has this, he has this line on page 22 uh, where he says, the purpose of this book isn't guilt, but it's grief. Um, and I thought that was profound because guilt is the gut reaction we have when we think about our muddy Christian history. Um, and guilt is so inscribed into our evangelical culture. Uh, most of us are, ha, are evangelicals. We come from that background or, or just conservative Christianity. Um, I think of all of, so sorry if this is triggering or explicit. I'm going to talk about porn. But I, I've done those groups with groups of guys in the past where we go through, you know, books on uh, sexuality and lust and whatever, and guilt is the primary driver there. And I'm and I'm discipling this uh, youth kid from this church I went uh, to in college, and he he also he he has that same posture towards sexuality and lust, just this overpowering guilt of what he can't overcome. And there's no other emotion tied to his sin; it's just guilt. Um, and I think guilt is good and it serves a, a good purpose. But guilt can also turn us inward. Can, like, like we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, sin turns us inward. I think guilt also turns us inward to ourselves. We think, oh, I'm so bad. I can't believe this or that happened. When in reality, I think grief is almost just as important, if not more important, to healing um, than guilt is. Um, I think of David when he was, you know, condemned for what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. Nathan says, you are that man. And what does he do? Of course he's guilty. And of course he's going to receive punishment. His child's going to die. But then he goes and he weeps in sackcloth and ashes. I'm sure he's guilty, but he's also grieving. 
and grieving, like Paul says, like Tisby says, it leads us to repentance. And I think a big part of that is because grief doesn't just turn us inward, it also helps us understand what our sins and our actions have caused to other people. And we grieve this reality of what we've done. We grieve the suffering that other people have experienced because of us. And so we can't just have guilt. We also need to have grief. And grief, I think, is so central to this process of healing as a nation from racism. Yeah, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reread what we, uh, part of the verse that we read at the beginning. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. When I read that, what I'm thinking is, like Derek, is that we have to come to terms with our guilt and our grief. But the Jesus that we look to isn't a Jesus that says, when you hand him the things that you're grieving about, the hands, hand Jesus the things that you are guilty about, he doesn't throw it back in your face and say that this is wrong. You know it's wrong. That's why we're going to Jesus with it. Jesus is the one that gives us the strength to go into repentance. That's why godly grief is what Paul is exhorting here. Jesus is the one that allows reconciliation to happen. It is with Jesus that our country can be changed. I fully believe that. And it's not going to be easy. And yes, the church has done horrible, evil things in the past. But I believe in the healing power of God and the healing that Jesus can do in our lives and in our country. So as we go through this book, go through it with Jesus. And Tisby is 100% talking about this. He's exhorting Christians to be Christians. He's not telling us to <laughs> not go to Jesus, <laughs> quite simply. And I think that's very important. And that, that, that really resonates with me personally. So go through this book with Jesus is, is my exhortation to you. And so, with that, we'll return to Jamar Tisby next Tuesday. On Friday, we will choose a chapter that we want to read through with you guys, and then we'll talk about it. And, um, yeah, and I'll pray us out. This prayer actually comes from Tisby. Um, there are several verses that he references that we felt would be good for a prayer. So, here we go. After this, I looked. And there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. For in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you that were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And we cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Blessings. Blessings.